my name is Jocelyn McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're finally doing an episode on the god of cinema, Martin Scorsese. Justin, earlier this week, I went to see the movie Underwater at the Young and Dundas Cineplex, Stan Kristen Stewart. I'd never seen a movie before. The images were overpowering. The play of light and shadow. The emotions that seemed boiling just beneath the surface of every shot. I realized that this was a medium that held an almost primal power over me. <laughs> Whoa, Marty, you're here? Yeah. <laughs> and you're a big fan of um, Underwater, the, uh, I guess, K-Stew joint? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a that's a riff that's going to date this podcast instantly, because <laughs> Underwater, which opened the second week of January 2020, is probably already forgotten by the time this episode drops. <laughs> probably. But you know what? It doesn't matter, because Martin Scorsese thinks that we should archive it and have it for history, because who knows what will be the important films of the future. You know, it's been uh, 197 episodes, Mm -hmm. and it's taken us this long to get to The God Marty. Yes. And one of the reasons is, you know, you and I, we like Martin Scorsese, but one of the reasons is that what's a way to talk about him that isn't really boring? (laughs) There is no way, except for the one that we're doing today. (laughs) Right. We're going to talk about him as a cinephile, Mm -hmm. because he is, I think... More so than even Quentin Tarantino, the quintessential cinephile director. When you think of that auteur who respects cinema and builds off of cinema, I think that Martin Scorsese, not just in the movies that he makes, but in the acts that he does in preserving these films, he is that guy. He's one of the few filmmakers who I believe has really changed and helped shape the canon, not just through the films that he makes, but through his advocacy of other filmmakers. He's also, I think, as an ambassador for cinema, just an absolute good. He he represents goodness in cinephilia. His taste is constantly open and evolving. Even in his 70s, he seems to always be on the lookout as, as a cinephile for New Horizons. You know, there's been much debate over the last year about him as a director. Does you know, Has there? Well, sorry, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and my brain yes. gets broken. But, you know, he has his dissenters. Mm-hmm. There are those who say that his films are, you know, very masculine films. That yes. he doesn't That he's not interested in women. Maybe that's a debate for another time. What I can tell you is that as a uh, producer you know, of other people's films. As a distributor of other people's films. And as a preservationist of other people's films, he's uh, championed and saved, even, films from all over the world, films of all different genres, films so unlike the kinds of films he makes. Just recently, you can hear him on a podcast talking to Joanna Hogg, the director of The Souvenir. Which he produced. Yes, and him talking about how that film and her previous film moved him as much as it did. In the 90s, he made this long documentary a personal journey with martin scorsese through american movies i may be butchering the title Mm -hmm. he's also made a couple of other documentaries since then about film like my voyage to italy and he's just given so many interviews over the years that i feel like his cinephilic journey it's almost like it's almost like a folk tale at this point (laughs) like like we've heard him talk about certain movies that were impactful on him many many times yeah when you hear him talk about neorealism or you hear him talk about uh king vidor's duel in the sun not lost in the dust yeah and you can see his personality come through him just talking about these movies and i think that what's important about him as a cinephile is that his cinephilia is not specifically like the love 
for movies just because they're movies. When he talks about them, he often speaks about the emotional impact that they had on him and how his emotions kind of uh, evolved and changed through his experiences with these movies. As I was revisiting a personal journey this week, I realized that it it, it truly is kind of an autobiographical work, mm-hmm. you know, this this journey through American cinema, because movies are like the emotional journey that he went through in movies is the same emotional journey that he explores in his films. You can tell that with him, this frail, asthmatic Catholic boy who grew up in the Lower East Side in New York, you know, much like the Lutheran Paul Schrader film was something that is both sort of sacred and profane to him and film was also something that he sort of lived vicariously through as a child i think that film like you just said it it was his gateway to other experiences that in some way he could have felt trapped in this place and that place is you know illustrated in something like mean streets but films these big budget epics these uh, italian down to earth dramas that allowed him to experience things he otherwise could not and i think that when he talks about it he talks about how it's changed him as a person and you know it's easy to get stuck in the trap of when you're thinking of martin scorsese of just like the films that he grew up with but i think that as we talk more about him what's really interesting is the fact that it isn't limited to like the American cinema that was out when he was a teenager. It's everything and continues to evolve. And, you know, we all in our heads have an idea of what the Martin Scorsese style is. The Basically, it's the Goodfellas casino style. A.K.A. And you know, he's admitted this himself, what he ripped off from Jules and Jim, Fosato Fos film. <laughs> but I think also as he grows older, like you can see other influences starting to, you know, make mm-hmm. themselves felt in his in his cinema. Silence, for instance, draws a lot from Asian films. The Irishman, a slower, more meditative experience, draws a lot from Jean-Pierre Melville. I mean, throughout his entire career, you could just look at something like Kundun, and like that's inspired by, like you said, a lot of Asian films, but also stuff like uh, Jean Renoir's The River, which he uh, holds it very dearly in his heart. I mean, it's easy to get lost in... You know, the films that are like big and brash, like even like The Aviator, which is like old Hollywood, right? That's what you think of when you think of Martin Scorsese. But I think as a cinephile, the more you kind of look into the stuff that he talks about, like through his World Cinema Project, the more you discover that, oh, wow, no, he actually champions everything in the world, specifically stuff that can disappear and will be gone forever if someone like him didn't step up and save it. Well, the World Cinema Project, which he started in 2007, its mission statement is something along the lines of to preserve and make available movies from countries where film preservation is quote-unquote, not the top priority. Well, the World Cinema Project is actually kind of the offspring of his film foundation that started in the 90s, which had people like uh, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Robert Redford. Yeah, like Robert Redford really cared. He probably he just signed something. Some money. Clint Eastwood Clint was Eastwood. On, the, on, the, on that as well. And what Martin Scorsese discovered is that like films that were printed on color stock early on, the cheaper one, the colors faded and they disappeared. Mm-hmm. And none of the studios were doing anything to preserve those films films that were starting to deteriorate, that the negative was going to be unusable in a few years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the Film Foundation like to say that, like, 
50% of the films made before 1950 are just gone completely. <laughs> and to that point about fading film stock, there are enormous numbers of movies where if you go see a 35mm print in a rap cinema, like if it was on the cheap film stock, it's turned rad. Yeah, just how, the colors have all been leached out of it. How many times have you gone to see a movie in a rap theater where it was it was? Anytime rad. I go see something that's like an exploitation film and it's made like before 75, which is when like the stocks changed, there's a good chance it'll be a red print. Well, I mean, I went to see uh, Fitzcarraldo once, mm-hmm. which New World Pictures put out in the 80s and that had turned rad. Yeah, so well, clearly, New World Pictures Roger probably Corman. put it on the cheapest <laughs> stock that they could. And it's frustrating because, you know, you go see it you go mm-hmm. see a movie like that and if you can't even see the color of it you may as well just put on a dvd well in the 90s uh when scorsese was doing this project trying to find these films and just preserve them that was important mm-hmm. but what's even more important now is that you know stuff is being digitized but there's still no archival process that ha- is the norm and right. no one knows how long digital stuff will last right it just because you've uh, done a scam mm-hmm. doesn't and also technology changes right yeah like today's glorious 2K transfer may not look, you know, it's not the original. It may not look good on the next system. Right? And you need people like that. I feel like I'm talking about like, we need billionaires to do this good stuff. Well, I mean, the, uh, the system as it is right now, mm-hmm. basically we're at the mercy of benevolent billionaires to fund projects <laughs> yeah. like Or this. just benevolent people in power like Martin Scorsese who can push studios to do this stuff because... People need to understand that studios don't care about their old films. Well, like, we've yeah. talked about this before. Even a film like Speed Racer, which opened on IMAX film everywhere, there's was only one IMAX print left. Or, for example, A Perfect Getaway, a film that uh, David Towey made, which was considered kind of disposable when it came out. From 2009, right? Yeah. No more prints exist of it. Wow. It, they're just gone. The studio's like, ah, we junked them all. We were talking recently to someone from E1. They had a whole bunch of rare Canadian stuff. They think they lost the rights, so we believe they junked all their prints. Like, films that, you know, I don't know if you were there when we showed Abraxas at the Laser Blast Film Society. I was. That beautiful print. There's no version of that digitally anywhere that looks that good. They may have just tossed it out. God. Yeah. So that tragic. stuff happens. And it's like what people perceive to be trash or that there's no monetary value in it. They just throw it on the curbs. And so those are huge budget American movies. Yes. I mean, Speed Racer, for God's sake. Insanity. barely a decade old. Uh, consider a movie like Trances, mm-hmm. which is a Moroccan film from 1981 and which is actually the first movie that Scorsese himself handpicked for the world cinema. Yeah, project. in 2007. Um, so uh, we both watched that mm-hmm. one this week and it's available in, I think, the first Criterion Blu-ray box set. Yeah, of and, world cinema. And it's on the Criterion channel as well, so mm-hmm. you can watch it. This is a, a documentary about a Moroccan Moroccan band called, uh, I have it written here, Nas El Jouane. Yes. <laughs> uh, maybe I pronounced it wrong. It's not like that. It's uh, Nas Rowan, I believe, oh, is the Rwan. way that it's promo- okay. pronounced. I was literally watching the documentary and I like, wrote it down when they said it. But I think it translates to trances, okay. which is why that documentary is called that. And, you know, these guys, they're troubadours. They go from town to town. It's sort of like song stories that mm-hmm. they do but but also there's there's like a hypnotic po- and element. like a politically inflamed and kind of sociological bent to everything and like this film which is in essence a concert documentary mm-hmm. with inserts of them kind of talking and hanging out i gotta admit that when i watch this 
and I, I saw this in your review too, like it's not the music that we listen to. In fact, it's probably very foreign to both of us. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really enjoy the music, but mm-hmm. I feel like that's, and that's my problem. And yes. it, the, the movie is all music. So look, this movie's not for us, but I was interested in watching an interview with Scorsese that's mm-hmm. on the Criterion channel as part of a little documentary. He's briefly interviewed in it. And he talks about, he was very much attracted to the film's soundscape. He, uh, he liked the interplay of the language and the acoustics and the strings and also the electricity of the concert footage. You know, we see how alive the audience is when they see the band. And there's even a concert where, you know, or a couple of concerts where the audience comes on stage and we see them sitting in the bleachers behind the stage. They weren't, they're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. The security is there manning the stage. But the connection between uh, the audience and the performers is so powerful. And Scorsese is, you know, uh, very much interested in the electricity of a live music setting. You can see it in Shine a Light or um, the, last waltz. the Last Waltz. Well, you know, when you say that, like, it's not for us, it's because we have no relationship with this kind of stuff because it's Moroccan music and this Moroccan society is never given to us at any point culturally yeah. ever. And we also don't have a lot of context for the politics mm-hmm. of the film. In the movie, it's mentioned that, you know, this band who they're sort of considered like the Rolling Stones of Morocco, they're sort of synonymous with a lot of people in Morocco as being, you know, linked to their revolution. So mm-hmm. they are the sound of freedom, basically. And what's important about a documentary like this, I feel, is that it would have disappeared if someone had not stepped in and preserved it. The way that Martin Scorsese actually saw it for the first time, the history of it is crazy, is that he and Thelma uh, Schoonmaker were editing King of Comedy and, you know, they were editing only at night. And when this film played at a few festivals, it was picked up by Night Flight, which was like this late night cable access show. They would play like movies and music videos. And while they were editing at night, they would have this TV on and suddenly this documentary came on and Scorsese was like, what is this? Which is a great example of how this stuff is discovered that it literally goes to the lowest common denominator, the like midnight to like 6 a.m. slot. And that's how this stuff is discovered because the people that are in power think that it has no value. Very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's important that it's on this World Cinema Project box set, whether we like the music or not, because you get a picture into something that otherwise you would never see. Exactly. (laughs) And the fact that Martin Scorsese is like putting this out in the world in an easily accessible form, whether through that Blu-ray box set or if you go on the Criterion channel, I think is incredibly important. And like, you know, we may say... I don't know if it's for us because we have no experience with it. There's other stuff on this box set that like, oh, maybe it will be for us, but it wouldn't be for somebody who gets trances. <laughs> exactly. And there are other films in there like uh, Tuki Buki, which mm-hmm. I haven't seen yet, but I, but I, Oh, it's great. To. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a film that has its reputation has risen a lot in recent years. Just because it was featured on that box set. Yeah. And that's a filmmaker as well that he made this movie. He didn't really know how to make a movie, but he put it out there in the world. And I think it, won some awards around and it was maybe released a DVD or VHS, but I think it's important for them to be kind of just preserved in the correct way. Because eventually if they just exist on some crummy DVD, they'll just disappear Mm -hmm. because people think that this doesn't really have value or if it's on this cheap thing, it'll probably be available somewhere else when the reality is it's not going to (laughs) be. I mean, yeah, there's like Turkish films, I believe. There's an Edward Yang film, Taipei Story. Yeah. uh, There's also a, the first film by... A Pitchapong, where's the Thakul? 
Yeah, I threw it to Will so he could pronounce that name. And Scorsese actually talks about how, well, this is a new film. Like, it was late 90s, early 2000s. Why does it need to be preserved? And he's like, well, it was shot on Super 16. And the technology to kind of capture it and make sure that it exists was disappearing. And that if we hadn't done this when we did it, the movie could have just disappeared. And, you know, we're talking about the Warped Cinema Project, which I think is like the main focus of Scorsese now. And as a preservationist, that's what most people talk about. But even like back in the 90s, he was saving movies left and right as they were coming up. So um, we're going to get to one of the movies that Mm -hmm. he's really championed. I want to talk just a little bit more about the uh, personal journey through American film. In the way he describes his cinephilia, it illuminates some of the central conflicts that are, and some of the, I guess, um, I don't know, aesthetic dilemmas or, or the themes that recur in his, in his own filmography. There's a part in the documentary where he says, and I'm quoting, the key issue for me was what did it take to be a filmmaker in Hollywood? Even today, I still wonder what does it take to be a professional or maybe even an artist in Hollywood? And how do you survive the constant tug of war between personal expression and commercial imperatives? What is the price you pay to work in Hollywood? Do you end up with a split personality? So Scorsese in the documentary talks about how he views film primarily, ultimately, as a means of personal expression. And yet he's clearly also fascinated by genres. He's fascinated between the balance of art and commerce. And he likes he likes limits and impositions. Well, Scorsese always likes to say in interviews that, ah, wouldn't it have been great to work in the studio system that they would force you to make movies that you'd come in from nine to five. They'd give you a script and whether you like it or not, like Michael Curtiz, you'd have to hit that studio floor and start shooting. Ah, I wonder what kind of art I could have made like that. One thing I'll say for him is that in a lot of his filmography, you can see him trying to adapt to different genres. Mm -hmm. There's Shutter Island, where he obviously draws a lot of influence from Val Luton horror films. There's Goodfellas, The Departed. These are gangster movies in the gangster tradition. He even even compares them to movies like White Heat. Or Age of Innocence, where he's kind of, I mean, not only riffing on Merchant Ivory films, we have Daniel Day-Lewis, but he's also like looking back to like George Cukor kind of high melodramas as well. I think when he takes on a project like Cape Fear and The Color of Money, part of the attraction for him is the idea of, well, how much of my personality can I impose on this, frankly, commercial product. Even something like After Hours was also a commercial imperative for him. Like, I need to prove to the money men in the studios that I can take something entertaining and deliver a product. (laughs) The Aviator, too. Yes, The Aviator as well, (laughs) which was a script that is pure Martin Scorsese, but was not one that he originated himself. So there is that, like, push-pull between everything that he does. But I would say that Scorsese, other than maybe something like The Color of Money and Cape Fear, he has mostly followed his own muse. And he said that like Cape Fear is something that he felt a little bit uncomfortable with when he made that was supposed to be a Steven Spielberg project yeah who ended up producing it yeah that's right also when he talks about Duel in the Sun and I can listen to him talk about Duel in the Sun all day he talks about how the images were so overpowering and sort of the the hint of sex was so strong in it it was it was almost too intense for him as a four-year-old to take and he he clearly regards film as like he's attracted to the disreputable side of film. He talks in the personal journey documentary about, you know, in addition to the prestigious films, the Cecil B. DeMille movies, um, which he probably also enjoyed for their kind mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, uh, seamy side as well. But he was also particularly interested in uh, disreputable filmmakers, filmmakers like Samuel Fuller or Phil Carlson or, uh, you know, probably even Alfred Hitchcock to some extent. 
Today, you can see him in documentaries all the time from filmmakers from all over the artistic spectrum. Yeah, Bud Bedeker. Larry Cohen, he's in the King Cohen That's documentary. right. Like, his phone must ring, like, he has a separate, like, filmmaker documentary phone that they call him. If he's busy, they get Joe Dante. Yeah. But if he, he can talk, he'll show up and he'll do it. Or he's in, Richard Schickel made a documentary about Charlie Chaplin in mm-hmm. the 2000s, and Scorsese's in it talking about he's he talking about Monsieur Verdu and a woman of Paris and he seemingly memorized the whole film so he can just talk about them shot after shot after shot if you go to IMDb and you click uh, Martin Scorsese as himself I believe he has something like 320 credits <laughs> that he's not doing this because this is how he pays the bills he's doing this because he thinks this is important I mean even before he made any films he was a teacher <laughs> and I think that idea of teaching and spreading this love of cinema is as important to him as anything in his life it's also interesting looking at his NYU course syllabus and this is when he was in his 20s I think and a lot of his classmates were probably around the same age as him and some of the movies that he showed at NYU were Force of Evil The Bandwagon Johnny Guitar The Searchers El Dorado and The Nutty Professor these are movies that are sort of canonical at this point, right? They don't seem like that adventurous choice. But now. they weren't at that time. At that time, they were disreputable. Yeah, exactly. Especially something like Nutty Professor, which was a big hit. Right. And so what, you're teaching it in university? Like yeah. that Jerry Lewis, that crazy guy? Ugh, to get Joe Dante and Martin Scorsese in a room just to talk about Jerry Lewis. Oh, uh, what a thrill <laughs> that would be. And, but yeah, he's interested, like in those films, he was interested in in a lot of cases, the genres they represented and how those genres would evolve over time. Whenever he's talking about genres and he devotes different sections to the Western, the musical, the gangster film, in every case, it seems he's fascinated by the loss of innocence that happened after the Second World War, how the Western got darker, the musical got darker, gangster mm-hmm. movies. In gangster movies, gangsters were replaced by, uh, you know, capitalists. Yeah. So as a cinephile, I mean, he's often talked about as this symbol of auteurism. As much as he is a champion of personal expression in film, he's also, in the way he talks about movies, fascinated in how movies just evolve evolve naturally over time, the way that society changes movies. And, and just like how movies can have an emotional impact on people, not just specifically of like, I am reacting in the way that the filmmaker wants me to, but in how these images affect me and I take it internally throughout the rest of my life. Uh, Why don't we talk about a movie that he really put on the map, which is Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom, directed by Michael Powell. One half of Powell and Pressburger. Yes, uh, the filmmakers who made Red Shoes and uh, Black Narcissus. And Peeping Tom is the film that killed Michael Powell's career. It was made in 1960. It's kind of like a Hitchcockian thriller. Same year as Psycho, in fact. Yep, about a man that goes around filming the deaths of women, which he kills himself with a tripod with a little knife on the end. Now, I know when I give that synopsis, it sounds very gimmicky, like, ah, the knife on the tripod. Ooh, what a great kill. But what the movie's really about is voyeurism and the way that um, we're affected by movies, seeing emotion in movies, and what is real in those emotions. Yeah. And this is a film, like I uh, said at the beginning, that killed Michael Powell's career, that people saw it was trash, and then it just rubbed them in the wrong way. Yeah, as I was watching it this time, I was trying to figure out why did this movie kill Michael Powell, but Psycho only propelled Alfred Hitchcock to new heights. I have a theory for that, is that this movie is so slick and it's shot the way Michael Powell shot everything beautifully mm-hmm. that 
that was a shock to people to see this kind of violence and this kind of like psychosexual feelings projected on the screen, painted in this way. While Psycho was shot like a TV movie was. Yeah, I mean, Hitchcock used his TV movie crew, so it has a different aesthetic that almost gives it a B-movie aesthetic. Consciously stripped down, Mm -hmm. consciously disreputable and yeah gritty in a way that's like look this is ugly material so we're going to shoot it in a very prosaic style yes but yeah if you shoot if you shoot the murders and peeping tom as beautifully as you shoot the red shoes i guess critics thought that he he was somehow endorsing the murders Mm -hmm. right and it's so aesthetically pleasing Mm -hmm. that a critic or even a viewer can be like whoa Like, this is very disturbing because I am familiar with all these stylistic touchstones and you're pushing it in a way that it should not be pushed. What's interesting about Peeping Tom is that when it was released in America, it played a lot in black and white. Mm. It didn't play in color. In fact, I believe um, in New York, it only played in one theater. And uh, Jim McBride, the good friend of Martin Scorsese, was very influenced by it. And that went into his um, fictional film, uh, David Holtzman's Diary, Mm. was inspired by Peeping Tom and that kind of like voyeuristic gaze on all this stuff. Hearing Scorsese talk about a movie like Duel in the Sun, you can see what attracted him to this. And even, you know, sex. sex. (laughs) Um, But, but, the way that sex sort of boils under the surface, Scorsese as a director, obviously his movies, he was working in a time of more freedom and his movies are more frank and explicit in their sex and violence. But his characters are not the most expressive people. Travis Bickle, Jake LaMotta. Okay, I mean, I guess Jake LaMotta yells and screams a lot. <laughs> yeah, but like, that's right. They're, they're men who are not in control of their emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's It's boiling and raging underneath the surface. And Uh, probably Scorsese himself at times in his life has not entirely been in control of his own emotions. Yes, that is well documented. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, you can see what he was attracted to in a movie like Peeping Tom. Yeah, and it's also like the way that you use cinema. Like the main character in Peeping Tom, he is incapable of going out into the world without hiding behind his camera. Mm -hmm. That he's documenting these emotions through his lens, almost as if like, He doesn't have to interact with them. They are real on the other side, but he is kept separate from them. He is a voyeur, so on some point he has a shield, and he's also elevated of the emotions that he's seeing on screen, because as the movie reveals, throughout his life, he was documented. And so, like, the emotions that he felt are trapped on the screen. Mm -hmm. And I think that Scorsese can also kind of project the idea of that as well, of, like, when you're a cinephile a lot of your kind of like emotional backbone is through the movies that you watch. Yeah, right? he's, he's a voyeur. Exactly. I mean, we're all voyeurs when we're watching these films that were never intended specifically for us. And you can live vicariously through what's happening mm-hmm. in those films. Like films can become sort of like a conduit for your own emotions. If Travis Bickle is expressing something, he's sort of almost expressing it on your behalf, or you can exercise your own demons through Travis Bickle. Yeah. If you're a maladjusted man. You can project yourself onto the Joker and be like, yeah, you're right. The society is the problem. That's right. <laughs> uh, we should point out, Martin Scorsese did not uh, executive produce the Joker, which uh, was pitched to him. And he said, no, thank you. <laughs> so, you know, Peeping Tom is a film that, you know, because it tanked, it was kind of forgotten. Michael Powell did direct a bunch of films afterwards, but it wasn't until the company Corrance came and visited Scorsese and said, hey, we hear you like this movie. We'd like to distribute it again. Can you give us money to do that? And he said, yeah, sure. And he gave him the money (laughs) and allowed it to go back into the world and to be rediscovered in these newly struck prints, which allowed people to see it in a way that they never had before. Mm -hmm. 
uh, before we leave Martin Scorsese forever, I'd like to... <laughs> forever. <laughs> Rest in peace, Marty. Yeah, uh, gone too soon. Uh, I'd like to read from a f- couple of things that he wrote. One is from a recent introduction that he gave to a book on Korean cinema. It's called Virtual Hallyu, Korean Cinema of the Global Era. He begins by saying, To find a filmmaker or group of filmmakers with a new approach to film language, new answers to the question of what a movie is and what it can be, it's one of the most rewarding aspects of movie culture. The pictures coming out of Iran and Taiwan in the 1990s, for example, required an adjustment. I remember watching them for the first time, seeing that they were urgent, passionately made, and I quickly understood that I would have let the pictures themselves guide me, teach me their grammar, show me the way to their secrets, and to cultural experiences and givens shared by different filmmakers. The great Korean cinema of the late 90s and 2000s crept up on me, slowly and without warning. Hong Sang-soo's The Day a Pigeon Fell into the Well was a deceptively unassuming picture made with great assurance. He later goes on to say... Park Chan-wook's Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, like his subsequent pictures Lady Vengeance and Old Boy, seemed to come out of a different strain of genre filmmaking. American drive-in movies, J-horror, Shaw Brothers martial arts epics. But the violence and action and chaos became expressive instruments, and the films were as ferocious as a great Eric Clapton guitar solo. But lingering in the background was that same unease and melancholy that I recognized in the other pictures. He goes on to talk about a lot of other movies, but that gives a sense of uh, the way his mind works and the, the the breadth of knowledge about film he's he's able to bring. Can you imagine Marty sitting down and like watching a Shaw Brothers movie? <laughs> he's like, oh, there's a Chang Che film that I haven't watched. I'll reel it up and let me watch it. I mean, clearly he knows what they are. <laughs> yeah, clearly he he's does. seen them. And the other one is from the 90s. It was a letter to the editor that he wrote to a newspaper. I'm not certain, certain what the newspaper is, but this letter to the editor has been widely quoted. The article was called, Excuse Me, I Must Have Missed Part of the Movie. The article cites Federico Fellini as an example of a filmmaker whose style gets in the way of his storytelling and whose films, as a result, are not easily accessible to audiences. Broadening that argument, it includes other artists, Ingmar Bergman, James Joyce, Thomas Pynchon, Bernardo Bertolucci, John Cage, Alain René, and Andy Warhol. It's not the opinion I find distressing, but the underlying attitude towards artistic expression that is different, difficult, or demanding. Was it necessary to publish this article only a few days after Fellini's death? I know it's a dangerous attitude, limiting, intolerant. If this is the attitude toward Fellini, one of the old masters and the most accessible at that, imagine what chance new foreign films and filmmakers have in this country. It reminds me of a beer commercial that ran a while back. The commercial opened with the black and white parody of a foreign film, obviously a combination of Fellini and Bergman. Two young men are watching it, puzzled in a video store, while a female companion seems more interested. A title comes up. Why do foreign films have to be so foreign? The solution is to ignore the foreign film and rent an action-adventure tape filled with explosions, much to the chagrin of the woman. And he, and he concludes the letter to the editor, which goes on for a little bit longer, by saying, If you accept the answer in the commercial, why not take it to its natural progression? Why don't they make movies like ours? Why don't they tell stories as we do? Why don't they dress as we do? Why don't they eat as we do? Why don't they talk as we do? Why don't they think as we do? Why don't they worship as we do? Why don't they look like us? Ultimately, who will decide who we are? I agree with Martin Scorsese. Uh, (laughs) I mean, at the end of the day, what Marty is championing is like humanism, right? That you're open to 
every experience in the world and you can do it through movies the most accessible form of that yeah. which I think is important and I think that it's something that people don't talk about him when they talk about him as a cinephile so Martin Scorsese come on the podcast yeah let's let's have you on here we'll have a chat listen you can fly us up to New York if you don't want to come down here <laughs> we'd be open and visiting you alright so you know we said that that was it for Martin Scorsese but we lied because we're doing a Patreon episode on is it his most ignored film well, it's widely seen, but one of his less loved movies, mm-hmm. one of the ones that everybody sort of says, oh, yeah, that one, <laughs> which you did last week. <laughs> yeah. Gangs of New York. So did we like it? Did we hate it? Well, you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out. It's at patreon.com slash the important cinema club, $5 a month, and you can become a subscriber. You'll get it and you'll get everything else that we've done before then. Hundreds of episodes on all types of deep cut topics and also stuff we love mostly stuff we love which is also deep cut topics so uh as for letters which you can send us an important cinema club podcast at gmail.com the first one is from lucinda mason and it goes indian cinema recommendations hi justin and will Thanks for your great show. Well, thank you for listening. I started listening to your podcast from your Roberta Finley and Penelope Spheris episodes. Love them both. And now I listen as often as I can. Sad to hear that your female director episodes are your least downloaded, but please keep doing them. That They're may not great. Be true, even. Is it? It is. It okay. is, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> They're great. And I would love it if more people got into their films. I mean, we try to do all those foreign filmmakers so we can be like, no, no, these are <laughs> least listened to now. <laughs> also, even more porn episodes, please. Hey, I'll, I'll do it if you want it. <laughs> or at least a nudie cutie episode as a treat. Nude on the Moon is wholesome content that could work as a palate cleanser. Discussion after your talk about something like forced entry again. Well, we should point out, if you haven't listened to it in our back catalog, we did do an episode on the director of Nude on the Moon, Doris Wishman. That's right. So check it out. And I'm really excited for Nude on the Moon and other Doris Wishman film, supposedly coming from Agfa at some point. And a beautiful restoration. Yeah, because yeah. they own the... Uh, um, copyright for those films and I believe they've been touring them theatrically like a year ago but I haven't heard any plans of putting them out on Blu-ray yet and the letter continues on another note you two are some of the few people I see online talking about Indian cinema you've inspired me to watch more Indian films but I don't know where to start any recommendations from you two either specific films or places to get ideas other than just browsing Amazon Prime because there's just so much stuff on there thanks again for the great work Lucinda well I mean we gotta say that we are sheer novices when it comes to this stuff yeah like we're we're kind of shuffling in the dark too there are some books out there that yeah but they're not like that like (laughs) user-friendly if you know what i mean there's one there's a coffee table book that i've used called bollywood the films the songs the stars Mm -hmm. you can find it on amazon i think which is is a decent like beginner's rundown I mean, some of the classics that, like, everybody always talks about are, like, Cholet, mm-hmm. Dawn, Amar Akbar Anthony. Mother India as well. That's, yeah. like, a classic art house Hindi movie. And when we say uh, Bollywood as well, me and Will have also been, like, discovering all these other um, sectors of Indian cinema, like Tamil cinema or Telugu cinema, or even uh, Kannada cinema, uh, which is called Sandalwood, which is a whole other film industry. I think Netflix right now has Om Shanti Om with Shah Rukh Khan. That is a great entry point. Om Chetiyam is also a love letter to Bollywood. That's right. So there's that whole musical sequence in the middle where it's it's just a parade of stars coming out and you're not <laughs> going to know who all these stars yeah, are. You're like, it, who is this? But it's still fun. I also recommend Doom 2. D-H-O-O-M 2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doom! Which is a fun action movie of the mid-2000s that's a good, like, 
entry point. I mean, just recently, uh, me, Will, and some of my friends have been making an effort to go to the Indian cinemas around Toronto. Mm-hmm. So we'll probably be updating you with like new ones that have recently come out. If you don't follow me on Letterboxd, do it because I'm trying to watch as many Indian f- uh, films as I can. And you can see the ones that I like and I didn't like. Like just recently, I really enjoyed um, Saho, which me and Will, and we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, which we put on our top 10 list. And I believe uh, Saho is available on Netflix and Sarah is available on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. So you can check those two out if you like. Uh, Bajil is another one that I watched recently, which mixes the gangster genre with also a coach teaching an all-women soccer team. And they're put together. Oh, there was one from a couple of years ago called Dangal. Do you yes. remember Dangal? I remember which Dangal. Which is a good inspirational sports movie. A little, a little corny, but, but <laughs> yeah. solid and entertaining. I mean, if you're looking into like blockbuster Indian cinema, which I think has been my kind of point of entry yeah that it's always gonna be corny but i love it so much yum 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 there's a film that i don't remember the title of i mean we talked about this before when we did our bollywood episode is that one of the like barriers of entry is just that the titles are not in english so it's difficult for you know dum-dums like me to remember them yeah like i watched one recently that it's kind of like wages of fear aka sorcerer meets assault on precinct 13 and mm. takes place all over one night where like a prisoner that just gets out of jail has to drive a whole truck filled with unconscious police officers while there's a bunch of gang members that are after him. So good, came to the theaters, was a hit, and then just kind of quietly went on YouTube where you can rent it. So check my letterbox. I just reviewed it recently. I'll put it in the show notes as well. There's just so much out there. I will just say that there has never been a better time to be a Westerner Mm -hmm. interested in Indian film uh, because... um, I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I first saw like my first few Indian movies, the only way to see them was either go to the Indian theater in North Etobicoke and hope you catch it at the right time or go all across town to the Indian neighborhood and and just blind rent like a bootleg DVD. (laughs) Now they're everywhere. You can find them on every streaming platform Mm -hmm. and it's daunting, but there's so much to discover. I think the problem is, is like you want to find that person or that like site that will like guide you and say like, these are the ones that you should watch. I mean, Josh Hurtado on ScreenAnarchy.com, he does talk about Indian cinema a lot. So there's that entryway. But other than that, there really isn't anything. Like when a new Indian film comes out, there's very few kind of North American sources that cover it. Certainly none of the newspapers. No, which is crazy because they're there. They should review them. (laughs) Well, I mean, you think of like the alt-weeklies. Yes. Like the alt-weeklies that remain. Like what is alt? Mm -hmm. You know, what are underrepresented Are there any alt-weeklies in Toronto left? Because I believe now Uh, magazine just closed up. No, they didn't close. They got bought. They're still around. (laughs) Now magazine, start reviewing Indian movies. I remember uh, reading a journalist from Toronto being like, wow, all these foreign films are playing at Young and Dundas, like right downtown. Oof, that's crazy. I didn't know that. It's like, you should know that. You're the movie reviewer. You should be reviewing these movies. Yeah. This is your job. Or I don't know if the answer is to hire a white guy to review them. No, but, it's not. But surely there must be somebody who is of that diasporic community mm-hmm. who can write, who can even do a column to just like measure the temperature. Yeah, I like I think that what. I'm looking for, when I say that, like, the Times of India, they're writing it from a perspective that it is not mine, mm-hmm. is that, like, culturally, they're going through different stuff than I'm experiencing. They'll right? have a context for all yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes the reason that they'll dislike a movie, I'll watch it and be like, this is great. Yeah. Like, we both watch War, 
And we're like, this is amazing. And you go on Letterboxd, where it's mostly like Indian cinema fans, and it's like two stars, one star. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, hey, wait, what the heck? Yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. that's because we don't understand the context. And like, we don't know why they're giving it this. Like, they hate one of these actors or something like yeah. that. So, yeah, it's it's tough to get into. But me and Will, we're going to fight through it. And we will have more Indian cinema recommendations as this podcast goes on. We should do a Shah Rukh episode at some point. We do, should do a Shah Rukh. I feel like we can get a non-male actor or um, like choreographer or something like that. Oh, that's interesting. And we could talk about that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is fun to do like the big male megastars because yeah. like they're the ones that are on top. But I feel there's like another perspective we can get through it. But we'll talk about that at another time. So thank you very much for that letter. I hope we had a few films there that you could go out and find. And uh, our second letter goes ranking systems. And it starts, Dear Justin and Will, First of all, I adore the pod. It's provided me with barrels of fun and informative insight so thanks for all the energy you put into the show. I'm curious to hear your opinion on what you might be referred to as critical ranking systems. That is, ranking films out of five stars, out of ten points, perhaps with decimals a la pitchfork.com, or of a certain number of bags of popcorn, or say, one or two thumbs up. <laughs> what is your relationship with these ranking systems? Are there some instances in which you take them more seriously than others? And has your attitude about which this change over time? Would love to hear your thoughts. All the best, Evan. Well, I'll tell you something obviously star ratings are stupid right Mm -hmm. we all know that and of course i respect i i all the all the many great critics who don't give star ratings to their reviews pauline kale what's she gonna do give something three stars because uh she doesn't and i respect that here's the thing pauline i know we're going with this i want to know if i watch this movie or not (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly so it is very helpful to me as as a consumer yes (laughs) to know if if it's a four star Uh, i mean the letter continues p.s i would be remiss if i didn't mention my personal preferred ranking system which is ranking films out of three stars i initially started doing this as a bit but came to find that ranking (laughs) out of three is perversely fun and sparks lively conversation. There was a sick thrill to awarding a movie I actually kind of like, one out of three stars, because one out of three isn't too bad, true. Or give Rise of Skywalker's three stars out of spite for the world. I give this podcast confidence three out of three. Well, that sounds like it has nothing to do with your your rating system. You're you're just a troll at that point. (laughs) I would love the lively conversation that comes out of this. See, as I want to do the spinal tap question, which is, well, if three is the highest, why not make five the highest? Yeah, that's right. Well, this this goes to three. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, star rating system was something I hated for the longest time. I was like, no. When I started my first website, I'm like, not ranking stuff on stars. And then I believe it probably switched on Letterboxd where I started going through old reviews and I was like, do I like this or not? I know I've watched it. So I have actually a very um, regimented star system, which is three stars. If you really want to see it, see it. Like maybe you'll get some enjoyment out of it. That sounds like two stars. No, three stars. Okay. Three and a half is, oh, you know what? If this interests you, go and see it. I had fun with it, but it was lacking in some areas. Four stars is, oh yeah, check it out. This is great. This would be a recommendation. Five stars, yeah, I don't know, perfect. Loved it. I mean, for me- I feel like three and a half, four, those Mm. are what you rate a lot of movies. Yeah, three and a half and four is what I, if I I don't like something, maybe I'll give it three, like if it had me, and then it dropped the ball halfway, three stars. And if I don't like something, two and a half. If I hate something, like one, one and a half, but I rarely give those out. So folks, if you want to translate that into normal people talk, (laughs) three stars equals two for Justin. No. See, the thing is like two stars is... (laughs) 
is failure. That's under 50%. So like oh, 50% is failure. So like if I brought that to, 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 to like a person in authority and by authority, I mean my parents, they'd be like, what the fuck is this? Okay. <laughs> right? Okay. I see. I mean, you know, one star, one and a half for me, that's failure level. That's complete mm, failure level. Yeah. Two stars, two and a half out of five i mean yeah two stars two and a half is like i don't recommend this mm-hmm. i don't like this yes um but yes there are images on the screen <laughs> yeah but that i, I agree with thing, you <laughs> there are things to recommend in it i think that uh your lines up exactly with mine but uh, after three stars i give a lot more two stars than you do though. yeah you do yeah uh but you're also trollish on uh letterboxd <laughs> two stars as well yeah, yeah a little bit a little bit because here's the thing when people are seeing that top bar on letterboxd and they see one or five stars they will click on that review because they want to see what that person says well so i'm not i'm not disingenuous in those ratings but, no but what i will say is that one star and five stars are both provocations yes They're they statements. are They're exactly statements. Yep. yep i mean you were saying earlier tonight that if you see i give something like four four and a half like that will get your interest yeah. because you're gonna be like "Ooh, this sounds good well justin's been watching a lot of kung fu movies lately and if i see him give a kung fu movie three stars i say no i'm not gonna watch that. <laughs> no but i wouldn't recommend you yeah, to watch but it but if i see him give it four stars it's mm-hmm. like okay i'm gonna watch that yes and if you see me give something no stars, it's a Canadian film, and I will not give it a critical rating. <laughs> All right. So if you want to send us letters again, it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing next week, Will? We are doing Lucretia Martel, director of the recent film Zama, as mm-hmm. well as a small number of other films. Small but acclaimed. Yes. Uh, she is also the person that led the jury that gave Joker the... The golden line. Well, I, I think it's pretty well known that basically certain people on the jury wanted to give the golden line to Polanski. Oh. And, and, sh- and she didn't. Sh- I mean, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. Maybe this isn't true. I've <laughs> yeah. heard it through the grapevine that certain yeah. people, maybe certain people who were involved in certain other film festivals might have wanted to give Polanski the yeah. award. So until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, just interrupting for a moment to clarify the Indian movie that I was talking about was Kathy, K-A-I-T-H-I. It came out in 2019. It's the one that I described as Wages of Fear meets Assault on Precinct 13, and it's currently available for rent on YouTube. I'd also like to thank all of our new Patreon subscribers. So that includes Tom Golden, James Majur, Sean Kelly, Matthew Hemsley, Vincente Perez, Harry Westergaard, Phil Moore, Joshua Clark, John Carter, Josh, Alex, and Glenn Stefani. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do this without you. Also, for Patreon subscribers, I am doing a contest this month. I'm trying to do this more often. If you go to the Patreon page on the Gangs of New York episode, you will see I list a title of a Blu-ray I will be giving away in a draw. So if you would like that Blu-ray, go to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club, become a member, listen to all those episodes, and also enter your name in the comments of this week's Patreon episode, which again is Gangs of New York. And as per usual, if you could like and follow us on Twitter, Important Cinema Club, on Facebook, it would be greatly appreciated. I also talk about my letterbox, which is just my name, Justin DeClue, D-E-C-L-O-U-X. If you want to know everything that I'm watching, follow me on there and you will get an inner look of the way too many movies that I consume on a daily basis. And with that, I'll return you to our regular scheduled programming. 
I got the Oscar fever. Hope you got it too. Is that a real song? That's from On Cinema. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> so the Oscar um, nominations came out, and yep. Well, that's us for this week. Goodbye. Movies are back, folks, and they're better than ever. Have you written a tweet of I've got Oscar fever yet? Well, at various times, I tweet something to the effect of that the Oscar race is heating up. Yeah, that's right. It just feels sort of immoral to have the Oscars, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Against the backdrop of all this suffering. <laughs> I mean, there should be no entertainment. Australia is burning to the ground. There are kids in cages at the border. Mm-hmm. It's just China is locking up its Muslim population. Awful, awful. Just so much pain and misery in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think they should cancel the Oscars. Yeah, they especially should, because yeah. Adam Sandler did not get nominated. <laughs> I know. Speaking of speaking of misery and pain. Yeah, I you know looking at the Oscar nominations, I felt all interest in the proceedings just evaporate because there's there's not one name on that list that I'm like, ooh, I hope they win. Yeah. So it's like, eh, I don't really care. I mean, who cares if somebody wins an Oscar? <laughs> uh, me, if the Sandman wins. <laughs> yeah, it, see, it's it's only in that case where somebody, where it seems like, you know, an absurd miracle. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, if you uh, tell... Michael Keaton for Birdman. That would have been nice. Sylvester Stallone yeah. <laughs> for Rocky all, Creed. The, all the few who I've actually invested myself in have all lost over yeah. the years, so... <laughs> Uh, and yeah, if you told me that Quentin Tarantino is going to win this year, I would say, I don't All care. right, yeah, I don't Whatever. care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his place among the immortals is assured anyway. Who cares? Yeah. And there's not going to be any host. <sighs> I guess what I'm curious about is with, with that Adam Sandler point. Mm-hmm. So Adam Sandler's not nominated. And I, I guess I get that Uncut Gems is a movie that wouldn't appeal to the hypothetical Academy voter. Yes. All of the Academy voters we know are old. Kevin Smith. Is he an Academy voter? Yes, he is. Well, of course, he probably would like that movie. Yeah, he probably likes Uncut Gems. No, I'm thinking of people like like something like John Peters, <laughs> like who's a, who's an old an old guy who's in the Academy, or I don't know. Well, um, let's Ol- look- Olivia De Havilland going through her screener <laughs> pile probably isn't going to be excited for Uncut Gems. Well, I mean, obviously they only watched the films that popped up on Netflix, so it only explain all the nominations the two popes got. Well, this is the thing because uh, clearly I live in a bubble. I live yes. in an echo chamber. Just around people who agree with me what i know is that i've heard many people be excited about uncut gems mm-hmm. many people actually excited mm-hmm. in a way that people aren't excited about movies that often and then there's the two popes which <laughs> i don't hear anybody being excited about and i think that just shows me that i live in a bubble clearly there are lots of people who just watch the two popes on netflix yeah but the two popes is also accessible like i guess that the people who are academy voters looked at their screener pile and went Ugh, it's so hard to have to reach over and put a Blu-ray in and have to watch it or log in and do a screener. Netflix is already on my Apple TV. Let's just see what Academy Award nominated films are on here. Well, okay, I also get that a lot of people watched The Two Popes, Mm -hmm. but... How were there that many people who were excited about it? Excited enough to write Jonathan Price's name down. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I haven't seen The Two Popes. It might actually be wonderful. I, uh, just, I just don't hear any excitement about it. It's directed by the guy who did City of God. I love that movie. City of God is great. And yeah. then he made films after that, like <laughs> Blindness with yeah. Don McKellar. <laughs> and that won Best Picture that year, right? <laughs> Blindness? Yeah. yeah it, of course it did. So where are you going to tune in? Are you going to go to, I guess, a Cineplex Oscar event? going to sit from the comfort of your own home? I am going to the Paradise Theater to watch it. Are you? Yeah. Here's why I watch the Oscars. It's because, you know, I care about cinema. Mm-hmm. 
And this is, for better or worse, the moment when culture stops and talks about cinema. See, the funny thing about the Oscars is, I like to say that, ugh, Twitter, terrible, don't want to see all those jokes during the Oscars, but me sitting in a room with all my friends and we're riffing, that's great, love it. 